Well, we are glad you're you're with us, and boy, that was beautiful. And uh, we do have a handful of folks that uh, that are here in the room with us, and um, so we're glad that we got to uh, still see a few of you. But um, I want to share a little more with you about what we started last week, talking about the subversive good news. Before I do that, I just want to remind you, um, as Scott did. If you are doing the Christmas giving opportunities, whether it be Advent, um, the reverse Advent for the Red Bank Food Pantry, or if you're contributing um, for the Room in the Inn, the family from Room in the Inn, uh, we still want, need to get those. If you would like for us to come to your house and pick that stuff up, we will do that. Uh, you can message me. Um, you can message us through Facebook. You can uh, go online and you can there's a you can contact us through the website, um, and we'll be glad to come pick that stuff up. Um, there, there has been another opportunity that has come to um, come to us of another family that is in need, and we may or may not be able to help that family. But if you are still looking for a way to contribute, um, every little bit can help, and we'll get you in touch with that. Um, a couple of you have asked, well, can we can we just donate towards it and someone else go do some shopping because we're not getting out? You can absolutely do that. You can just, uh, if you want to give that online, um, the link is either in version if you're following, or it should be in the description, both in YouTube and Facebook. Um, you can also just make a donation there. And if you'll message me, because I don't think that our giving platform allows you to, to put a memo in. If you'll just message me and say this is what it's for, we'll make sure it gets um, for that. And if you are helping with Room in the Inn, make sure you go to journeychattanooga.com slash Christmas, and you will be able to hit the sign up and make sure that you sign up for the person that you are, or for the gift that you're giving, so we don't do duplicates. Um, so there's lots of ways that you can help. Um, also, I do encourage you to send in a video. I'm going to send in one of a song that I like at Christmas, and so I want to encourage you to do that. Um, and it does, and you can also there's all kinds of things that you can send in. You don't have to uh, sing a song. You can just talk about what's meaningful for you. And and, and honestly, since we're going to be doing an online Christmas Adam anyways, um, if you would just like to share a Christmas message with your journey family, or just what Christmas means to you in general, those would all be wonderful ways for us to celebrate a difficult season together. Um, this is still going to be a great Christmas. We, we still have lots of wonderful opportunities to spend with family and friends, even if we're not in the same room. So uh, I hope that you will participate in doing that. Last week, we started talking about the subversive good news, and we spent a lot of time talking about Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus, the reason that was important, and some of the language, especially the announcement that the angel gave at the birth of Jesus, was to directly subvert the institutional government that was in place at the time. And uh, Caesar Augustus was known by his own admission, like he, he declared himself that he was the son of God. He was called the Prince of Peace. He, it was said that when Caesar Augustus came in, that he was the bringer of good news. <laughs> he, all of the imagery that we associate with Jesus, we have to understand it was first associated with Caesar Augustus. And so when Jesus came in, it is not that Jesus then supplanted or took from Caesar what was due Jesus. He was using some of that language intentionally to subvert what was going on within that kingdom at that time, which was incredibly oppressive for the nation of Israel. So today I want to share with you, I want to jump ahead. 
And I want to talk about the subversive nature of the good news and the subversive nature of Jesus with his first miracle. And so I want to jump ahead to Jesus is now an adult. And it's important that even though we have a few stories of Jesus' childhood, we don't really know that much about it. But when we first start really seeing Jesus, we're jumping ahead to when he's he's about 28, 30 years old. And at this time, we are introduced to him beginning to call his disciples. But we're also introduced to him performing his first miracle, which you have probably read a thousand times. Maybe not a thousand, but a lot. And maybe you've missed some of the pieces that make this such a subversive story. So if you'll want to follow along with me, you can follow along on version. You can also uh, just grab a Bible if you would like. Um, in John chapter 2, verse 1, uh, we have this story of the um, this wedding that's happening in Cana in Galilee. And John is the only one who is either here or at least the only one of the, the Gospels that writes about it. And so this is John chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. I want you to listen to the story, but there's a story behind the story that is important for us to see as well. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, you should know right from the beginning, a wedding today is nothing like a wedding at this time. <laughs> when you had a wedding, today, you, you, you kind of wrap it in maybe a couple of days. You have like a day of a rehearsal. You have, you know, maybe a, some kind of a, a, a dinner party for your wedding party the night before, and then you have the wedding the next day, and then the couple's gone. Everybody leaves after the reception. But at this time, a wedding could last up to a week. Like you would invite your guests, and they would hang out, and they would drink a lot of wine, and they would hang out for about a week. And so if you were hosting this thing, then, or you were helping to host this thing, it was your responsibility to make sure that everything went out without a hitch. And it appears that in this wedding, Mary, for whatever reason, is the one who is helping here, and Jesus kind of gets roped in to this problem they have because they're not providing the best, um, they're not being the best host culturally that they were expecting. So on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. We'll come back maybe to the on the third day. There's a lot of speculation on what the third day is. It was just three days later than what just happened. Was this an illusion to on the third day Jesus would rise from the dead? A lot of disagreement on that but it's included here on the third day. There was a wedding. The mother of Jesus was there. Now we know it's more than just Mary was there based on the context of the rest of the parable. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you, which I love this. This is um, Jesus, I believe, had a similar relationship with his mother that I have with my mother. Like if she tells me to do something and I say, you know, mom, I'm, I'm not doing it. She just says, yes, you are and tells them just do but he's going to do it. So I, I don't know if that's what's going on here. That appears to be what's going on here. We'll talk about that in a minute. Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants 
who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And then people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. In other words, they won't notice after they've had a few that you brought the cheap stuff out. But you brought the good stuff out last. Everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Then the first of his signs, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So, there's our story. It's an interesting story. It's a fun story. It's the kind of story where people go, I kind of like this Jesus, and I would have invited him to my parties as well. It's that kind of story that we often read. But underlying this whole story, when we dig into the context and the culture of what's happening at this time, is Jesus undermining one of the most established uh, institutions in Israel at the time. Now, why do I say that? How do I come to this conclusion? Well, I'm going to get to that. But a couple of things right up first. Number one, why did Mary ask Jesus to do this is one of the first questions people have. The second question they often have about this parable is, or not this parable, but this miracle, is why did Jesus respond to his mother the way he did and then still go ahead and do it? And I will say there is no agreement on scholars on exactly those questions other than the fact that culturally Jesus was not disrespecting his mother, even though maybe if we had said, woman, you know it's not my time right now, that would have been seen as incredibly disrespectful at that time. And this is part of the problem with not being able to see the exchange. Uh, same problem we have with text and email, but the the... General understanding is is Jesus is recognizing this is not something that I need to do just as a party trick. This does not need to be for a party favor. That is not what my what my glory that is given to me by my Father is for. Yet He chose in this time, as at the bequest of His mother, to do something significant that would demonstrate what He had come for. Now that you may be wondering, where do I get that? Verse six: There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. And he says that they are between 20 and 30 gallons each. Now, one of the questions I've always had when I read this early on when I was reading the Bible was why did he choose these jars? (laughs) I mean, they're out of wine. They have all these other things that had wine in them and they're empty. But why choose these jars that are set aside for Jewish rites of of purification? There's something significant there. Jesus could have said, fill up, pull all the wineskins, get all the the pottery and the earthenware, and get bring all the bottles that are empty and bring them and fill them up, and and then and that would maybe even be a little easier because then you can pour it easier. But he says, no, I want you to take these six big water jars that have always been used for purification. Now, the reason that they are made out of stone is because anything in in a stone vessel in the Old Testament was considered pure. Like you couldn't do do the rites of purification by something you, you made out of pottery. You couldn't spin a big jar and put water in it and say, this is holy water that we can now wash ourselves and we can be 
spiritually, symbolically clean. The law made an allowance for anything made out of stone. So at this part of the world, there's a lot of limestone, and they would cut out these big chunks of, of limestone, and they would literally dig them out, and so they could use them as a vessel to hold water. They would also have kind of primitive that they would spin them on and and create they they didn't look like just rocks i mean they were really ornate beautiful vessels but they had to be made out of stone if they were going to be used for this this rite of purification and purification was incredibly important to the jewish people uh, it was something that moses had set down for them and that you need to be purified you need to be cleansed before you come with god and what we know by reading through the system of the old testament it was it was it became incredibly oppressive and something that no one could fully follow and fully be holy by this system of righteousness that came from purification or from sacrifice but they had these huge jars which could have been somewhere between if they're 20 to 30 gallons each somewhere around let's say 150 gallons of water are in these big stone jars. So I had to look it up because I didn't know the answer to this. How much wine does it take to fill up a bottle? Like how how many bottles of wine are we talking about here? And what I have found, and you know, wine bottles are all different sizes and shapes and so different amounts in each one. But on average, a wine bottle is, you are meant to have I think it's five um, five wine bottles for one gallon of wine. So let's say we have 150 gallons in this big thing. That's somewhere around 750 bottles of wine Jesus creates on the spot. On the spot. 750. 750 bottles of wine as somewhere are over 3,000 glasses of wine. I guess this is a lot of wine. And hopefully this is going to hold out for the rest of the week. But what's important is not how big they are or how much they hold. What's important is why did he choose them? Why did he choose those jars? Now, this is considered his first miracle. And one of the reasons, one of the ways we, or or approaches we have to have to this story is understanding what a miracle was. Now, we get miracles. Something fantastically supernatural happens. Someone's sick, they're made well. Someone can't stand. All of a sudden, their legs are made whole. They can stand. Um, Someone is dead, and now they're alive. We, We understand those miracles. But a miracle in Greek was not just something that was like, oh, that's so neat. That's interesting. Look at what Jesus did. He, he kind of corrected the events of the world that have happened, and so miraculously now they're corrected. A miracle in, in Greek is literally translated as a sign. What Jesus is doing here is not just entertaining the guests or making sure that they keep their drunk on. What, what he's doing here is he's creating a sign for them. And so if there's a sign here, then we have to begin to ask ourselves, well, what is the sign? Like, I don't know what the sign would be. There's a lot of wine. There wasn't. This is great. So what is the sign? As we look in the Old Testament, wine is a symbol, and it's possibly one of the primary things that he wants to focus on, but I don't think it is. In the Old Testament, wine is considered a blessing. It's, in, it's considered good fortune. If God is shining down on you, that means you have plenty of wine to drink. Uh, wine is always seen as a good thing. But when we look throughout the Old Testament, 
There are a couple of similarities for this story to something else that happened way farther back. That if we begin to look, and I will to be to be uh, to be upfront with you, this is some new stuff for me as well. Uh, I'm reading a book right now by a guy named by, of the name of of uh, Brook, Brooksy Cavey is his name. He's writing. He wrote a book that's called The End of Religion, and he made me take a second look at this story. Some interesting things that we find in connections to an older story is this is the second time that there is a miracle in which water is turned into something else. Do you know what that is? Think back about the other time, whether you're at home or you got a spackling of people that are in here or spattering of people that are in the room. What's the other story in which water is turned into something else? Yeah, it's Moses. It's the Nile. It's the first plague after Moses has come and said, you need to let my people go. And he gives a couple of initial signs that God is with them. And when Pharaoh doesn't budge, the first sign is, take your staff that has turned into a serpent and put it in the Nile, and it is going to turn to blood. And it's going to kill all the fish. And the, the Egyptians that drink it are going to become weary and tired because they're drinking blood, and they're, they're going to lose hope. They're going to lose hope in this bid to keep these Israel, uh, Israelites uh, enslaved in Egypt. What's interesting, and a connection I had not made, between is, is found in Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. In Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, talking about Moses, says, there will be another prophet like Moses. Now, a couple of things about that. One, that is a foreshadowing of Jesus. This other prophet like Moses is a foreshadowing of Jesus. And in addition to being a foreshadowing of Jesus, the fact that he's like Moses means there will be some similarities, but there also means there will be some differences. Moses and Jesus are not equals. They're not the same. But there are some similarities between them. So we have this interesting place in which the first sign, rather than calling it a miracle, let's call it a sign, the first sign of Jesus to demonstrate the glory of God involved turning water into wine is a, a subversion of a religious system that has used purification to pacify a nation for their own purposes. Now, I just gave you a whole mouthful. At this time, as Jesus is coming, the religious system is incredibly corrupted. Now, not only has Caesar Augustus taken over, and he is the son of God and the prince of peace and the bringer of good news, they totally have taken over the religious system of Israel. The high priests have been replaced. Anyone that is loyal to the, the old ways um, in which they followed the Moses and his law and were seeking God in the way of being uh, a truly observant Jew, they were replaced with someone that would be loyal to Rome and the taxation that would come from Rome. So it had been completely corrupted. Now it is said that the Pharisees would walk through the town often dipping their hands in the jars of purification as an outward sign of purity and holiness, even though, as Jesus pointed out time and time again, their hearts were as black as night. 
So these jars of purification were symbols of the people seeing these religious leaders coming in to this place, so coming and, and dipping their hands in to basically say, look at me, I am pure and spiritual and holy. I am God's person. Now we see Jesus address this in a number of ways. He talks about their tassels, they drag the ground. He talks about their prayers that are big prayers in the open. So people will look at them and go, look how religious, look how special, how spiritual these people are. And Jesus would condemn them for their outward acts of spirituality and righteousness, but their inner depravity that they were living truly within their hearts. And so in this time, as Jesus looks around for what am I going to do here, Jesus is not one that has ever wasted a miracle. (laughs) He has never wasted a sign. As he looks around at all of these empty, empty vessels that wine has already been in, his attention goes to these water jars that are often used by Pharisees to assert their own superiority over others. And he says, that water. Take those jars, fill those jars up with water. And rather than turning water into blood, which was a curse, it was a judgment on Egypt. It was condemnation for the nation. Jesus takes all that they have known about this type of a sign. He turns it on its ear to say, I am bringing living water. I am bringing something to celebrate. I am bringing new life. I am also subversively condemning the religious system. The subversive nature of this miracle is the subversive condemnation of a religious system in which people practice religion, but their hearts were still as black as night. Interesting Pew Research did a study on what many we've talked about here in in the past, and um, it's something that a lot of church circles talk about. It's the rise of the nuns. The rise of the nuns are those people that are not um, religiously affiliated. And in this Pew Research study, they actually did a study in religiosity in America and also in Europe. And they compared the church to those who consider themselves atheistic or agnostic in both of those places. And what they found in America, interestingly, was that even those who claim to be atheist or agnostic, in other words, I I don't believe there is a God or uh, there is a God, but I don't care about him, the reality is is many in America still who would call themselves a nun or religiously unaffiliated or say, I am not a religious person, actually do believe there is a God. I find this interesting because Pew Research is not a Christian organization. That the religious practice or the religious mindset of those in America claiming not to follow God or know God or even believe there's a God at least one in four still believe there is a God or there's value to prayer or there's value to some kind of religious practice. It's just that they have chosen themselves not to participate in what we consider religious services. This is one of the reasons Brexy Cavey calls this the end of religion. 
Not that that's a bad thing, but that is something we seek. That's what we want. That's what should happen, and it's what Jesus was saying with his this sign, is this is the end of the practice in which you have flaunted your spirituality over a group of people, and yet your hearts are so far from me. What's interesting is that there's more. Because if you go, if you continue to read through John chapter 2, you'll find that the very next thing Jesus does is after this wedding, he goes to the temple, and this is the first purification of the temple. Like immediately after in John's gospel, you have the, the miracle at the wedding in, in Cana, and then he immediately goes to the temple, and he, it's the first time that he purifies the temple. We sometimes think that that only happened once. It actually, if we read the Gospels, happened twice. Jesus entered the temple twice. The first time was here, right at the very beginning of his ministry. The last time is when he came in, just before he was crucified, where we really have the picture of him overturning the temples, fashioning a whip, and letting the temple have it. Jesus is making an announcement that the way we have been following religion is over. There is truly good news coming. Instead of water being turned into a sign of, of cursing and to being of judgment, of condemnation, Jesus is turning water into something that is a time for celebration, that is a time to celebrate relationship, that is celebrating, if we want to read farther, and this may be too far to read, at the fact that it happens at a wedding, and the New Testament tells us that weddings are symbolic of the relationship between Christ and his church, that's what marriage is, symbol, is symbolic of, that he chooses the sign to end religion, to enter into the age of the end times, as some would say, but the age of the gospel or the good news, the season of the Lord's favor, as Jesus says. He enters into it with this beautiful celebration where wine seeing as a blessing, wine seeing as God providing, wine being that... Um, sign in which God is now blessing through Christ. Now, why do, I, why do I bring this up to you? Why do this at Christmas? This doesn't really feel like a Christmas song or a, a Christmas sermon. Does it feel like something we would talk about at Christmas? But as Jesus cleanses the temple, what Jesus is saying to you, if you are a person who has never fit in with other religious friends, this should give hope to you. If you are a person who doesn't get the pomp and circumstance of religiosity, even though for some that can be very meaningful, but if you're a person who, who's not for that pomp and circumstance of religiosity, there is hope and good news for you. There is life, there is celebration, there is blessing. For us as followers, we struggle to dip back and forth between the Old and the New Testament. And the reason we do is because we don't really read the Old Testament, so we know a few things. We know the Ten Commandments. We know a few. We know a little bit about the Old Testament, but if we don't really understand the Old Testament, we don't really understand everything Jesus is doing in the New Testament because everything Jesus is doing in the New Testament still pushes back from the Old. So we can't fully understand the way they did unless we understand what they've been through in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying this is completely new. 
This good news for you, this is true freedom. This is true salvation. We did back and forth struggle with this as a pastor, to be quite honest. Like, you should, you should do certain things. And while those things should be parts of our lives, whether we talk about reading Scripture or showing up to church or worshiping regularly or, or being generous to others, we, we can create a religious system in which this is what it looks like to be a Christian, and we can make the weight of that just as heavy as these stone jars full of water when the Pharisees would walk by and dip their hands in and then oppress the people. We can do that. One of the things I'm struggling with here at this time in 2020 is where does the church go from here? Where do we go from here? And there's a lot of hope in the return to religious practices, coming to worship services, doing worship events. Um, I want those things to happen. But what I want more than that is likely what happened in the hearts of the disciples as they watched this, because it says that after Jesus did this, they believed I want us to experience Christ more fully so that we demonstrate him more fully to a world that is in crisis. Our world is in crisis. Our nation is in crisis. Our people are in crisis. And in the midst of that crisis, relationship, the importance of relationship to us may not be diminishing, but the power of the relationships we have is diminishing because we are not spending time with each other. We're not in front of each other. It's easy for me to give my opinion to somebody and not care how you take it because you're not in front of me. It's easy for me to get angry about something that's happening in the news, which honestly is anger because we feel loss. And rather than say, I'm feeling loss, I'm blaming somebody for the loss, and we so stereotype our blame that we cast our blame on a whole group of people, those people who are different from us, and our relationships are diminishing. It's happening in the church. It's happening in the workplace. It's happening with our neighbors. It, it's, it's just happening with even with family members. It's happening. So as I, I think about where do, where do we go as a church, We can't be the people who were built on a system where God is still turning water into blood, if that makes sense. We can't keep heaping on people religiosity and say this is what it looks like to know Jesus and have people actually know Jesus. At some point, we have to come to the place where we say, Jesus is making all things new. And religious practice is not the door to that. Now, I'm not saying we need to abolish our worship services and we need to abolish calls to prayer. The, 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 the fact is, if I pray because someone has guilted me into praying, does my prayer matter? Does God hear it? Does he respond to it? If I read my Bible because 
I'm, I, I'm on a hot streak on you version and I've read it for the past five days and I'm going to read it today even though I don't want to because I don't want to, I don't want to lose the last five days on my hot streak. Am I really getting anything out of it? Absolutely you can. And scripture says, you know, that God's word never comes back void. But what I'm saying is our, our motivation has to change. What drives us has to change. Being right is, an, is a product of being renewed by the Holy Spirit, not by choosing the right side and telling the other side they're wrong. So how do we do that moving forward when we're already at a place when relationally we're stretched and we're struggling and we're not sure we even like each other anymore? And I believe one of the answers is our return to the good news. As I said last week, we've been a bit on a bit of a journey since midsummer to come back to what makes us uniquely the church, what makes us uniquely followers of Jesus. Not Christians in the sense of, um, you know, kind of Christian in name only, but what makes us truly Christian. And we've talked about the, the ascent, that Jesus himself is essential. He is absolutely essential for us. Everything comes back to Jesus. It doesn't come back to me. It doesn't come back to our practice. It doesn't come back to our dipping our hands in and washing them so we look pure, or I went to church so I'm pure, or I go to the right denomination so I'm pure, or I believe the right things so I'm pure, or I've not done the sins you've done so I'm pure. Instead of that, what Jesus is saying is it is the end of that kind of practice because that is not good news. The good news is that Jesus has come for us to celebrate life together, and that life is the life we have in him. It is a time for celebration. It is a time for joy. It is a time for healing. It is a time where we build each other up, which we talked about through Micah 6.8. Humility is the place where we raise other people up, not where we lower ourselves, but we raise other people up. That should be the call of the Christian. When we talk about what does it look like to love our neighbor, we're raising our neighbors up. We're not tearing them down. We're not tearing ourselves down. We're raising everybody up. That is the call to love. We live in a world that is built on the necessity of tearing down the opposing force. Jesus knew that system all too well. In that subversive place, a subversive moment in the sun was to say, I'm making things new. This is to celebrate. This is a blessing. This is good fortune. God is shining down on us. Do we live as if that is the case? In his book, The End of Religion, Bruxy Cavey says this about this miracle, this sign. He says, he purposely chooses these sacred jars to challenge the religious system by converting them from icons of personal purification into symbols of relational celebration. Jesus takes us from holy water to wedding wine, from legalism to life, from religion to relationship. 
I resonate with that. That's what I want. That's what I want for our church. That's what I want for for our neighbors and our friends and for all who call this their their church community. This is what I want for us. And sometimes it's just just like this miracle. It's easy to miss when there's something deeper going on. I I want that to be our story too. There's, it may be easy to miss this differentiation from life and religiosity, but if you miss it, you miss the really good stuff, the life that he has come. The good news is good. This good news. Jesus coming is not just, oh yeah, we know that story. It is, it is freedom. But the good news is subversive. Because it challenges the systems that we put in place when we ourselves want to be God. This is the beginning as we enter into this Christmas season of hope. This is the, the beginning of unconditional love. This is a place and the opportunity in which we see really what God has always intended from us. As we, we talked about afterlife where God is seeking to take the realm of heaven and overlay it into the realm of earth so that we can again experience what he intended in the garden fully in relationship with him, seeing clearly, not having all of the struggles that we have in this world, but in all of those, we get to gaze on the beauty of Jesus. I... Uh, I shared one of Tim Keller's quotes this week. Uh, he's one that I follow, and I don't. Tim Keller and I don't have the same theology on everything, but he's so good on so many things. And he said, the religious see God as something to be used, <laughs> or Jesus. Religion sees Jesus as something to be used. But those who love Jesus see him as beautiful. I'm paraphrasing. It's not exactly what he said, but that's pretty close. We see Jesus is beautiful, not just an end to a means. So my prayer for us as we continue in this is our expectation of good things that are coming are wrapped in this freedom from sin, freedom from oppression, freedom from hate and demonization, freedom from hurting other people so we ourselves feel stronger, freedom to love fully, freedom to accept fully, freedom to show people that Jesus is more than just another religious system. It's not just these water jars 2.0. It is something completely different, something completely better. Would you pray with me? Father, God, I, oh, it is so much easier to just be religious. Oh, so much easier. Just doing what we're supposed to do. God, that is just not enough. Father, I pray that this Christmas season when nothing seems enough, <laughs> nothing seems enough in this Christmas season, I pray that you would show us the joy that came, not just in this moment in which this water is turned into wine, but the joy that came when Jesus ushered in a new way of living, a new way of life, a new way of blessing, a new way of gaining your fortune or your favor, a new way of being blessed. Father, I pray for those who are struggling today and don't know where they fit in this 
thing we call the church. The systems that make it up and the broken people that lead it will not be the the thing that is seen, but the beauty of Christ will be seen instead. The beauty of his sacrifice because of his love for us. The beauty of the fact that he himself came to be with us to show us another way. That he ended the system that became oppressive and there was no way we could ever truly experience God without him. I thank you that you did that for us. I pray that this Christmas, while we are maybe quietly lamenting all of the things that we feel we've lost this year, whether they be friends who have fallen victim to COVID, friends that have fallen victim to just this climate where we just no longer can even talk to each other anymore, whether we're feeling the loss of our financial security or our hope for the future, our children that don't get to experience something about their childhood because they're quarantined or programs have ended or being shut down. For those that are entering in to very formative years, and in those formative years they're struggling to learn the basics of reading and writing because they may not even be able to be in school, and so it's going to be later before they fully get it. For parents who are doing their best to care for their kids and really need someone to help them care for themselves. For marriages that are being stretched, for families that feel like maybe they're dissolving. Father, Jesus came to make this all new and better and right. And I pray that at this time of this season and in this place, Father, that we would begin to see you making us new again. I pray that you would prepare us for what's coming in 2021. And I pray it will not be back to life as normal, but life that Jesus intended. From this miracle to his last, to truly see him, experience life and blessing and hope. And let us do that by loving you, experiencing your love, and loving each other. Let us change our world in a time when it needs to be loved. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. That's it for today. Um, We're not going to have a closing song. Um, I will tell you that many of you have asked about uh, ways for us to do some interactive stuff on Sunday mornings again. And And uh, I will not lie, I'm kind of missing some of that engagement and conversation as well. We're still looking in ways that we can do that. Um, I do hope that you will send us some videos in. Maybe think about Christmas differently this year. Send us some in that we can share with our whole community on Christmas, Adam. And uh, we love you. We hope you have a great week.